Hey, in context, friends, we need your help. Between now and March 30th, we have a survey that is out, and we need you to complete it. We want your feedback. We want to know why you listen to Michael Easley in context, what you want to hear more of, less of, and anything else you want to tell us to help guide us in the future of Michael Easley in context. So right now, if you go to michaelincontext.com slash survey, you will be entered to win a package including a $50 Amazon gift card, Ken Boa's Handbook to Prayer, and Michael's book on prayer interludes. Again, your feedback is so valuable to us and we would love it if you took our survey from now until March 30th at michaelincontext.com slash survey. Over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books. The big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley, in context. Today we're looking at the book of Philippians. Interesting, the history of this city of Philip is what the word means. It used to be called uh, Crenides or Crenides, which uh, was a term used to explain the location about 12 miles north of Athens. If you've been to Greece, you've probably gone to Philippi and looked at the ruins there. Very well established. If you've been to Israel, you know a little bit about what ruins are like and archaeology and how they dig through and set things up to give you an idea of the perimeters, the parameters, some of the the history of of the culture. A lot in Philippi that you can still see today. If you're a uh, online image search person, you can use Google and look for images of Philippians, put in archaeology in Philippi, and you'll have a field day if that excites you. About 356 BC, it was a village, a, a small village in some respects, and Philip II was the king of Macedon at that time, and it would not take on the name later Macedonia. What's important about King Philip II, he's the father of a guy known as Alexander the Great. So this is a powerful time in the, uh, in the Middle East, expanding over to Greece and Turkey and that area, and what will be considered the spread of the gospel. Um, it became so large, it became a Roman colony under Roman rule, as was most of the ancient world. The Roman Empire was the power. Uh, if you've been to Israel, we talk about the Via Maris, and if you're looking up here, you've got the Mediterranean Sea. At the top, you're getting, bordering in Syria and Lebanon. You come down kind of a straight line, the Jordan River, and then it goes over here, and this little about the size of Connecticut. And if you look at this piece of property, uh, the Mediterranean Sea, we call it the Via Maris, that when you travel over cross-country before roads, you went where it was level and easy to walk. If you had animals, which was pretty rare unless you were wealthy, you looked for a place that was easy to travel. You didn't go over mountains and cliffs. You went on a level plain. And that's true in all of antiquity. And what we call the Via Maris in Israel would have a partner, if you will, in this part of the world called the Via Ignatii the way of the travel, in other words. This was also a travel destination in the sense that if you've been to Israel, we talk about Bet Shan. So you go via Maris. Bet Shan is the the central place to go north, south, and east, west. 
So anyone that traveled along that way stopped at Bet Shan. And if you remember Bet Shan, those of you who have been there, it's an enormous ruin. And it has a cardio, a main street, which you have in all Roman cities, a main street with the shops and so forth along the way. So all this is the Roman influence. Acts 16 records when Paul had a vision. And um, it was the Macedonian vision, as we call it. And it was for him to go to this region. And uh, we learn about an unnamed Philippian jailer. And we learn about a woman named Lydia. She was a businesswoman. And those are two individuals that are part of the first group that come to trust in Christ. And this begins the church in Philippi. Um, Actually, that church met in Lydia's home. And what we know of antiquity, uh, the compounds, if you've been to parts of Africa or other areas, a compound is typically a dirt area. There may be a wellhead. There may be some sort of uh, livestock support for, for uh, animals to, to graze. But the, the main part of that city um, showed who had wealth, who had power, who had money. And if you had a compound that you built, it typically had walls or mud bricks around. And so these homes, much different than we build housing today, but to have a courtyard would have been probably where they would have assembled a large courtyard. And so we envisioned, just, hypo, just guessing, that that is where the early church was meeting at Lydia's home. So she was a, a businesswoman. She had means. She probably had a larger home than others. And that's where the church began. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we remember that they were to go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the world. That was the rock in the pond. Jesus says, when you take this gospel out, you go from the smaller area, larger, larger Gentile area around the world. Paul the Apostle does what we call the missionary journeys in the back of your Bible, the maps you never look at, but those maps are little outlines of where he went each time. And so we're seeing that unfold. Acts is sort of the history of the early church. These letters are interspersed that Paul is writing to those groups where he planted churches in the main. And so we're seeing that play out in Philippi. Again, the Acts 16 gives a record of this where he is going. Luke, Silas, and Timothy were some of Paul's most frequent uh, partners in ministry. And when you put together the dots of these missionary journeys, it gets a little complex. You almost need someone who's good with spreadsheets. But you have, you're not, you don't always know who is with him where, but you do know a lot about you know, individuals at certain times. And so Luke, the physician, his friend, is with him on most of his travels. And there's times when he's separate. There's times when he's not with him. Uh, this is also part of the prison epistles we talked about last time. So he's incarcerated in, or probably in a, in a governor's home, like a, a cellar or a basement that would be large in someone's uh, residence uh, when he's writing this letter. Um, Philippians Let's take a look at our friends, uh, Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson, and their little book, Talk Through the Bible, which I've promoted through this whole series. If you want to get a snapshot of a book, it's one. There's good tools out there. This is one that I like, and many times I love the way they craft this paragraph on the book. Philippians is the epistle of joy and encouragement in the midst of adverse circumstance. I want you to hang on to that phrase. We're going to come back to it at the end. Joy and encouragement in the midst of adverse circumstances. In it, Paul freely expresses his fond affection for the Philippians in view of their consistent testimony and support. 
and lovingly urges them to center their actions and thoughts on the person, pursuit, and power of Jesus Christ. Paul also seeks to correct a problem with disunity and rivalry, urging his readers to imitate Christ in his humility and servanthood. In this way, the work of the gospel will go forward as believers seek to stand fast, to be of the same mind, rejoice always, and pray about everything. It is a joyful book. Uh, we're not going to get called on the carpet like First and Second Corinthians. We're not going to be rebuked or corrected. Uh, it's encouraging, and it's, uh, it's perhaps Paul's most enjoyable letter he wrote. He loved the people in Philippi. He loved the church that was going there. And in the main, what he is telling them is joy. It's fellowship. It's keep on doing what you're doing. It's keep on in the ministry of the gospel. And so if you look across your life as a coach or your life as a planner or your life as a teacher or your life as a parent and you see a child, a student, a protege doing well, it brings joy when you talk to them. I have young men in my history who would attribute me with something that they became a pastor or whatever. And on occasion, you get a letter. I, I still like real letters. Uh, everyone's relegated to, uh, to uh, email and text is sort of, you know, thanks, okay. You know, that's what it is. We've, we've lost our mind with writing. But nevertheless, uh, not, that, not that I have opinions, but uh, a real letter written on, even if it's printed out, it's just like... a. I don't know about you, I like getting them. And you read a letter from some young person that, you know, Cindy or I or both of us influenced. And it just, it's like, what can I do for you? How can I continue to help you? Recently, Cindy and I had a couple visit. They were in our very first marriage mentor group. Uh, I'm going to say almost 20 years ago now, maybe more. And they came through, I think they have seven or nine children. They're a little crazy. Um, Brilliant couple, love the Lord, teachers. He's an elder in a local church. And I have some books I'm divesting. I have some books that are uh, written by certain people. One had a long, two long you know, notes in the front of them. And I have a few of these on the shelf. And I, what do I do with them? And I said, you know, that's a couple. And it was like I gave them $1,000. They were so happy to get, why? I want to help them because when I see them, it's joyful to hear what they're doing. It's encouraging to see how they're continuing to follow Christ, be involved in local assembly, to minister to other people. And this is Paul's letter saying, thanks. Keep on going. Keep doing the things you're doing. What I want to do as opposed to what I've done in the past, I've cherry-picked a few passages, and these are twofold. You probably know them, but we always need refreshing. Uh, perhaps you don't know them and it's new, that's great, but I've learned uh, the older I get, I was telling someone, uh, Mike Bentoncourt, I think this morning, uh, morning by morning new verses I read. You know, I've read them before, I've studied them before, I may have taught them before, but you look at them again and it just explodes with things perhaps you've forgotten or you missed or you have a new set of eyes at this particular time in your life. Um, so let's talk about some general observations. It may be a bit picky, and I am a bit picky at times, but this is the first time we're going to see the word deacon used as an office. And in the first chapter, uh, he's going to talk about deacons, elders and deacons. Now that may seem like a throwaway, but it's the progression of Paul's ecclesiology. He's explaining the church that he was commissioned to plant. And we read in Acts chapter 6, this is often, some of you come from a Baptist background, and you might look at Acts chapter 6, that's the office of deacons. 
and that's when it started. Uh, I'm of that narrow view, uh, probably right, but that narrow view that believes they weren't officially in office until later in the development of the church. Because as the church grew, and we read Acts 2.42, the apostles step away and go, we're committed to teaching, to, to study, uh, to pray, uh, to shepherd, and you need to do other things. Acts 6, they pick faithful men. These men weren't also rands. You know, these are Stephen. These are sharp men who were able to teach. They knew the law of the Old Testament. They were firm believers in Christ. And they were put in charge to do things that was a service ministry, not a, we might say, a public or upfront ministry. Um, the office of deacon is not really mentioned until this chapter. Now, later on, Paul will write specifically about those offices in what we call the pastoral letters, and Peter will mention them. But this is the first time we have nomenclature that says, elders and deacons. So it seems his ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, his ecclesiology is growing as an apostle. He's teaching people this is how a church should be conducted, and so he's addressing these two groups. Again, it may seem small, but I think it's important. A second one that's a pet peeve of mine, if you think my peeve about angels singing is big, this one's bigger. Uh, And this is the word uh, participation. And in chapter 1, Verses 5 and 6 of Philippians, I want you to see a word, and we're going to look at it again later in a moment in chapter 4. Let me read verses 5 and 6, and notice the word participation. In view of your participation in the gospel, from the first day until now, I am confident, and let me read it the way it would be read without English uh, suppletions. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. How often have you seen this on a mug or a, a, you know, a gigaw or something, a frame or on a t-shirt maybe? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a work in progress, Philippians 1.6. Um, what that is saying is this is a verse of sanctification. That God is doing something in me and he's not done with me yet. And that's true in Scripture, hold, hold your breath, that's true, but that's not what this verse is saying. As Dr. John Hanna frequently said, uh, I want to write a book called Misapplied Verses God Has Greatly Blessed. So just because it's a pet peeve of mine, don't change your theology or lose your salvation over this, obviously, uh, but I don't think it has anything to do with sanctification. The word participation is that worn-out word we used in the 70s, koinonia. You may have been in a church that had koinonia Bible studies or a koinonia Sunday school or whatever, koinonia groups. The word means a sharing or an alliance. Um, it's participating in something. When we break bread and have the Lord's Supper, uh, in the near future, by the way, we're going to reinstitute that. Uh, when we have the Lord's Supper, we're sharing in one loaf. One loaf is broken and distributed. That's the metaphor of what it means to share, to have an alliance with something. And so this term, participation, uh, has to be understood. Remember, meaning is determined by usage, or usage determines meaning. How a word is used is what it means. So when you look up a dictionary, you'll have you know, one, two, three ways the word is used. And koinonia is a loaded word. But the core root of it means to share or participate, technically to have an alliance with someone, that we're allies. 
Now, when you look at chapter 4, verse 15, it's a different word in English, but it's the same word in our Greek New Testament. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared, that's the word, no church shared koinonia with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. So these two words, same word, if you were hearing this in Greek, you would hear the ring. It would be obvious to you. He opens and closes the book with this word, your participation and your sharing. What Paul is talking about is the Philippians were the only group that financially supported their ministry. So in 1.6, what he's saying is continue the work that God did in you and essentially keep your commitment because you were giving generously like no other church, and I want you to keep on doing that. That was part of the reason he was joyful, was they had made, they made a commitment, let's say, and they were joyfully under, under, uh, funding the ministry that Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke are all about. So from an interpretational point, why this is important is we're missing something key to this letter. Your financial generosity makes the church work beyond Philippi. Your financial generosity is helping the whole church. And you think about this, it blows my mind. Jerusalem is the mother church, and on a number of occasions, smaller churches sent money home. Which, by the way, is nothing new with mission boards. It's nothing new with organizations. It's nothing new in history. But it was in the New Testament that it's explained and celebrated that when you give, you're supporting this larger ministry. And he's commending them for that. It's not talking about sanctification. He's talking about your generosity. Now, I don't want you to walk away and go, well, I can't ever quote Philippians 1.6 again. Uh, so I want to give you some passages that are more to the point of sanctification. And here are a few, and you can knock yourself out. Make a new coffee mug. Make a new frame over your thing or whatever it is, a little giga or something on Etsy. Put these verses on there. Take a look at these passages in 1 Corinthians 1.30 and 1 Thess 4, 3 through 8, so forth. Uh, these, these phrases, uh, sanctification as a sidebar means becoming more like Christ and less like my sinful self. So you can see how 1.6 would be misapplied. Oh, completing the work he began. And by the way, perfect in English uh, is a King's English, King James Version word that we pull in a lot of our language. It really means complete or mature. But in the in old, old economy, they knew what it meant. It wasn't perfect, like you didn't do anything wrong. You're perfect. It meant completing something or it was finished. Okay, pet peeve aside, let's go to some motivations that Paul talks about for the gospel and how he's expanding this ecclesiology. In chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, it's a fascinating passage. Again, Paul's imprisoned, and the gospel has advanced even while he's in jail. Some of you have been involved with prison ministries here in Middle Tennessee and abroad. It's a powerful ministry, and you never know how it's going to bear fruit, or if, or when. But, of course, men and women involved do that by faith, right? Um, he calls out those who proclaim Christ for selfish ambition, and that just needs a quick definition. It's personal success without moral restraint. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious in the right way, but the differential here is selfish ambition. You want to succeed just for your own personal attaboy. You want to succeed just for wealth. You want to succeed just for recognition, just for success. And this would fall in the category today, let me say kindly, of who we accuse of prosperity theology. 
the if-then. If you do this, then this will happen. A lot of what they're saying is true, but the if-then and promise and guarantee is where you need to be cautious. It may not always happen the way we'd like it to happen. And then we're clever at you know, explaining why. Paul's ecclesiology is saying, I'm advancing the gospel in prison. Oh, by the way, we got an unnamed jailer who came to Christ, who's known throughout the whole praetorium later on. we got Lydia, this woman uh, who's a businesswoman in town, and she's going to affect that ministry incredibly. And uh, there are other people out there that are preaching the gospel uh, for selfish ambition. Chapter 1, verse 18, he writes, What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. This calls me out, and it calls anyone out who castigates those who, we're going to differentiate false teaching from, let's say, confusing or muddy teaching. I know that's a, that's a hard thing to do, but that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying if they preach it out of pretense or truth, if the gospel's communicated, I'm going to rejoice. Now that's a big statement for an apostle in chains. I don't care how the message goes out, even if they do it for selfish ambition, which is wrong, but if the gospel goes out, I'm going to praise Christ. I'm going to rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Make sense? Now, later on, we'll see in the, in the pastorals, this isn't like everything's okay. Paul is going to call out false teaching when he needs to. And I call this the bookends of Paul's ecclesiology. How do we practice? How do we do? What's a church to be about? On the one side, if the proclamation of the gospel is clear, let's rejoice. On the other side, when it goes into error or a false gospel or foolishness, I'm going to call it out. That message is also interesting because he talks to the churches he's planted, not to the broad general population. So when people, and I have, a lot of these are my friends who write books or go on you know, different outlets and they, they criticize and castigate other ministries. Uh, I'm not their judge and jury. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But one question I often ask is, is it bona fide false teaching affecting people or is it just a little wonky? If the gospel's clear, Paul says, I rejoice. Now, that's a, that's a big gray area, and we'll talk more about it when we get to the pastorals. But just to get your thinking on this ecclesiology bell curve or bookends, if he's preached out of contempt, I'm going to rejoice. But we're going to teach sound doctrine, and we'll look at that in a few weeks in First and Second Timothy. So I hope that helps a little bit. It helped me as I labored through these in years past, but understanding Paul's teaching of the local church. And in no small part, he is the one who lays the foundation for what the church will become. Another remarkable passage is how Paul views facing life and death. It's an extraordinary passage. Chapter 1, verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I don't care what happens to me. My hope and expectation is whether I live or die, Christ is exalted. Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a statement. What a statement. Is it hurt? Yes. Is it horrible? Yes. Do we hate death? Yes. 
the problem with the here and now and the problem with Western Christianity is we, think of, we don't think about the there and then. We're, we're loath to that doctrine, that, that theology. But if I am to live on in the flesh, Paul continues, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is far more necessary for your sake. Um, this generation is loath to discuss death and dying. It, it's perhaps been true across generations. My parents, uh, Cindy and I were talking about this this week when I was, we were going through this, I was just sharing some of my thoughts with her. I said, you know, your parents and mine didn't want to talk about death. It was a third rail. I remember in seminary I heard a, a very um, provoking message about honoring your father and mother, what that really meant. And one of the applications was, have you told your parents that if they ever have a need, you'll take care of them? And it, it, I took it to heart. And Cindy and I talked through it. We prayed about it. And we made special trips to go see both sets of parents. Now, we were young and stupid, and I'm in seminary. I don't know, you know Abraham from Adam. I don't know anything. But that message affected me. And I went to my parents, and I said, I know this is indelicate. I know you don't want to talk about this. But if it ever got to the point where one of you or both of you were hospitalized or really needed help, Cindy and I would do whatever we could to accommodate. And we'd even talked about, I don't know how we'd pull it off, but maybe we'd get a home with like an in-law suite. Or maybe we'd even cash in and come back to Houston. And my mother got up and left the room. My father was like, well, that's awfully nice of you, but don't worry about us. Which meant, that's really nice, Michael. That's the translation. Um, we went to Cindy's folks, and they were not interested in having the conversation at all. Don't worry about us, he told me. Okay. Well, during those years, my mother and father ended up, ironically, in two separate hospitals at the same time. One with illness and one with an accident. And I'm calling every day, no cell phone, I'm calling every day to check up on them. And I talked to the, the leaders at the church I served at that time in Texas. said, if I wanted to take a break and go, I said, if you need to go, go. And so I talked to my dad, oh, stay home, we're fine. The veneer cracked and he said, you know, what you said a long time ago, I could see there might be a time for that. <laughs> that was big, that was big. That was a touchdown in my book, you know, as good as it got. Uh, fortunately, my sister took care of both of them as they passed away. Uh, and you try to be as involved as you can. Ironically, and, and perhaps it's because I'm in ministry, uh, I've been around death, dying, and suffering all my life. An altar boy in the Catholic Church, uh, we officiated a lot of funerals. It was actually a get-out-of-school-free card if there was a funeral because they needed three altar boys. I was always going to volunteer. And not only that, you probably got lunch and a $5 bill, which is a win-win, right? And so we got out of school, and you get your cassock and your surplus, and you go in the drive with the funeral director, and you go out there, and you, you, you go to the, and you're standing over an open coffin for a long time if they do a thing called a novena. And I remember this priest, uh, Father Flynn, uh, dear man, I remember him telling boys, it's just a suit of clothes. Don't be afraid. It's just a suit of clothes. Don't be afraid. And you know what? It was just a suit of clothes. I learned that probably in third or fourth grade. 
So I always officiated funerals. And then ironically going into ministry, I've been around a lot of dead bodies. Some of you in medicine more than me, obviously. But I've been around a lot of dead bodies. Children, infants, stillborns, car accidents on Halloween night. Uh, you name it. Uh, a woman who dies of cancer in her bed at home. I've been around a lot of death. Now, I don't love death. I have no death wish. But I, th- you're going to think I'm awful. I'm grateful that I was exposed to that all my life. Because another cheery Michael Easy sermon, <laughs> we're all going to die. We're all going to face it. And you're going to face it with loved ones before yourself, obviously. Duh. And when you lose loved ones, it's hard. And COVID has taken some people that we love. And this is a, it's a very practical passage, but I love Paul's tension. It's better if I'm dead, not a death wish, but for your sakes, Christ still has me here. Don't forget he's in prison. Now, a lot of us have been in prison emotionally for who knows what reason over our lifetime, and we don't want to live. I don't know how many people I've talked to. I'm not a counselor, but I talk to people sometimes about their, their hurts and emotions. And they, they, I've heard the expression, I'd rather be dead than more than I ever want to hear. I understand. I understand when you're in so much pain, you'd rather be dead than know that your whole life is going to be that painful. I get that. But I love what Paul's saying here. In the flesh, yeah, to die is gain. But it's better for your sakes. Talk about a man who had a clear mission. Talk a man who had, about had a clear vision. Talk about a man who was intentional with a purpose. A man willing to suffer his own indignities to minister to other people. The, this is one of the reasons Paul is such a compelling individual. Remember what the prophet Ananias was told to tell Paul when the scales came off his eyes? I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. Oh, I'm going to sign up for that ministry. Not prosperity theology. I'm going to sign up for suffering. This is contrary to everything within the Western mindset. Um, but Paul, I hope, I hope his words encourage you like they encourage me. This life is not our home. This world is not our home. This life at best is a clean bus station. I, I don't know if you travel by bus, but it's a, a liberal arts education. <laughs> travel across country by bus and see if you have any sanctification left when you finish. <laughs> and you'll probably be sick and have some disease. <laughs> bus stations are not comfortable. And uh, buses aren't much better, right? Um, but boy, we work so hard to make earth heaven. I love creature comforts. Do not hear me say I'm, I'm not uh, some you know, anti-materialistic guy. I'm very materialistic. I love my creature comforts. I love the stuff of life, but that's not home. It's just a waiting room. Well, enough about this. Uh, let's continue in chapter 1, verse 27 and following. Another remarkable section, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you. 
and that from God. For to you it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. In this uh, section of my Bible, I wrote in the margin a long, long time ago, MJE, do you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Can I ask you that question? Do you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? I'm sorry, to, I don't want to guilt or shame you, but it's a question that stops me in my tracks. Do you and I live a life worthy of the salvation that we enjoy? Fascinatingly, Paul does not give us do's and don'ts here. Do this and don't do that. Do this and don't do that. Fascinating what he does in this verse. Look at it carefully. He says, standing firm. One spirit. One mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's how you know if you're worthy in this sense, are you living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Do you stand firm? Do you have one mind striving together? Uh, how many times do I tell you the, the, my little idiom about, you know, be gentle, kind, loving, and firm. Smile at the future. Is your walk with Christ confident enough that no matter the sufferings and the, and the, uh, the accusations, the problems you're going to face in life, that you are worthy of the gospel of Christ. And here's a guy, think of him in prison. Don't overstate it. He's probably not in some you know, terrible dungeon. It's probably more of a house arrest in a governor's hold, we believe. Um, but he's saying, you're going to suffer. You're going to believe and have the good salvation, but you're going to suffer too. And if you're going to walk in a manner worthy, do you stand firm? Do you have one faith? Or, or are you Eeyore in your theology? Everything's bad. It's half empty. It's terrible. It's a horrible day. Are you conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, um, I think the two sides of the theological coin here are belief and suffering. That we have this gift called salvation, but we will suffer. And again, it's loath to the American Western mindset that you're going to go through sufferings. We have this if-then thing sown in our hearts. If I live a certain way, then I'll be blessed a certain way. If I raise my kids a certain way, they'll turn out as loving Jesus Christ and be in their Bible and they'll be respectful to their parents and they'll marry a good Christian boy or girl and they'll have great Christian grandchildren. That's if-then theology. Principally, that's true. If we do this, then that may happen. Proverbs is not a guarantee. Proverbs is a wisdom. It's a statement. If you do these things, you're more likely to have these results. There are no guarantees. Your children are free agents. They will have to own their own faith at some point in their life. You teach them, you guide them, you discipline them, you love them, you encourage them, you reward them, you you. you fan the flame of their dreams, of their gifts, of their interests. You try to find something they can lock their teeth, get their teeth bit into and enjoy. Maybe it's sports, maybe it's music, maybe it's medicine, maybe it's academics, maybe it's fill in the blank. You're trying to get them pointed in the right direction. You can't make them, can you? You know what? God can't make you and me either. That's why he says to live in a manner worthy to stand firm. So there's going to be suffering. Not to be morbid or cheery, Mike Lee's sermon. No, it's going to happen. 
be positioned so when it happens, you stand firm. It should be no surprise. That's the takeaway lesson. Well, I'm out of time, but not out of soap. For your personal study, I want to encourage you to take a look at uh, three passages on your own. Uh, Chapter 2, the first 18 verses is motivation to live like Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, 4 to 8 is that non-anxious life, you know, that uh, by everything, by prayer and supplication, make your needs known to God by prayer and supplication. Um, And then verses 10 to 14 are the secret of contentment. And that's not a marketing term. That really is the secret of contentment. Uh, No matter what comes our way, how are you and I content? Content in the New Testament means enough. Enough. And we have to decide that with our our acquisition of wealth, with how we train our children, with the size home we buy, with the amount of money we spend on X. When is it enough? The greatest place of joy is when you're content. And comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. If you compare yourself to somebody else's life, to their children, to whatever, um, our friend Rachel Cruz, uh, live your life, not theirs. What a great title for a book. The worst part of social media and all this nonsense is I'm comparing myself. No, be content. Look at what you have, what God has given you, and are you and I, are we faithful stewards? Joy and encouragement in the midst of adverse circumstances. That's where we started. Bowen said, joy and encouragement in the midst of adverse circumstances. So we've had quite a week. We've had quite a year. The pandemic hit COVID-19. You know, I have to explain pandemic to you from Greek, right? Pan means all or every. Demic is from demos. Doesn't mean demon, sorry. I wish it did. Uh, Demos means a crowd or people. All, everybody. That's all it means, a pandemic. All the groups of people are going to be affected by this virus. That's not an overstatement. COVID has been a pandemic. It has affected everyone, whether you got the disease or you lost your job or whatever. So COVID spreading is a great illustration of both the divisive and vindictive nature of the current pandemic of what happened in our capital. It's insane. And you and I can sit from the outside and give opinions and criticize and make commentary all you want. Doesn't change anything. Doesn't change a thing. Uh, in my, I hope it's growth, not just apathy. <laughs> and my growth in being a political junkie is to step back and say, you know, my opinion doesn't matter to anybody. Because I don't care about most of the opinions I read. I think they're all wrong. Because at this chapter of my Christian life, Christ is sovereign. Men and women are fools. And you've got to have a grounding to stand firm no matter what the nonsense comes to you, at you, and it will affect us. Inciting rhetorical and literal riots accomplishes nothing. I was driven back to the Constitution this week. If you've read the Constitution, don't raise your hand. You should read the Constitution once a year. It'll take you just a few minutes. It's not a long document. I put the preamble up for you just because I know you want to see it. (laughs) We the people of the United States. By the way, that phrase, we the people, there are hundreds of thousands of articles written about what that means. That's our country. Is it just the individual? Is it the states? Is it the government? Does it include the governing officials? No, it means we the people. 
But see, you got to be a revisionist. You have to attack everything. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, I mentioned perfect for a reason. That's the king's language. It means complete. They added the word more years later. We want to have a more complete, a more mature is a good way to understand that union. Whether you like him or not, Obama was right when he talked about a more perfect union. He was right. You're never going to have a perfect, complete union, but you can have a better one. Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. These founders had a lot of King's English in them. To ourselves and our posterity, to ordain, sound a little Christianese there, to ordain and establish his constitution for the United States of America. That's just the preamble. I wish our politicians knew it. That's who they're accountable to, we the people. So I took Paul's letter and wrote his. To live as Paul instructs the Philippians is to look to Christ, his life, mission, and even suffering. Paul exemplifies the Christian life. He essentially says, live like me. So we, the people of Jesus Christ, can be anxious for nothing. We can pray, ask, give thanks, and know. We can know for a fact the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension and will guard our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. I like that preamble better because that's where my hope is. Would you want it any other way? Would you truly want to live any other way than the way Paul outlines it? Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.